guys, welcome back, or if this is your first time here, then thank you for joining us. This is The Doula's Guide to dot 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 with me, Meg, also known as The Dunkery Doula. The podcast where we talk about all things pregnancy, birth and postpartum, sharing unbiased information to ensure you go into birth feeling confident in the informed choices you've made for yourself and your babe. If you missed the first few episodes and would like to know more about me, then go and check out episode one for a little introduction and a big chat on hypnobirthing and the following episodes for some great birth preparation. This episode, I am so excited because we finally got our first episode with a guest. So my wonderful guest today is Diva, also known as Broad Beth. Diva is a queer fertility and birth doula based in Glasgow, but she offers virtual support across the UK alongside a wide range of workshops and CPD for fellow doulas too. In this episode, we chat about what fertility support can look like and why you may need to access it, some of the barriers faced when accessing fertility support, how the journey might feel, we chat about legalities around fertility, the emotional aspect and how this might impact pregnancy and parenting journeys, as well as some of Diva's personal lived experiences, and much, much more. So I really hope you enjoy it, and let's get into it. Right, perfect. So thank you for coming on to the podcast. Um, to start off with, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us what you do, first of all? Yeah, of course. So hi everyone, I'm Diva, and I run a service called Bra Birth. And it's a queer fertility and birth service based in Glasgow, but I offer UK-wide support. Perfect, thank you. And so how did you sort of find your niche as this? So did you want to become a doula at first or was it your experiences that led you to sort of creating the specific like queer fertility support side of it? How did you come to that? Yeah, so I suppose just before the pandemic hit, um, I live with arthritis and I had like a full-time job. I was really struggling to keep up in that job so I took a bit of a career break after I got married in 2019 and I'd always been interested in like birth and maternity but obviously due to having quite a limiting condition it never really felt like an option for me Um, and for the first year of the kind of break that I was taking in the pandemic I just took a complete break for myself and then just by chance um I was following Freddie McConnell online um, because my husband is trans, so that's kind of where my interest in fertility comes from and how we were thinking of setting up our family. Um, And I saw one of the evenings that he was doing a masterclass with Jen Muir, and I just happened to click into that link and saw this, like, amazing course that um, I'd never really thought about before, but doula work suddenly seemed like an avenue that I could kind of get into where it would help me in my condition and it would still allow me to work in the areas that I was interested in and then to find such an inclusive course um, really felt like a good idea and then just by an amazing coincidence that was like the two weeks that the applications were open so Uh I I put through an application and managed to get on the course just by like um kind of a huge coincidence and then I suppose my interest in fertility came then from obviously doing like the pregnancy doula course and then when we finished that I didn't really know I've never been self-employed before I didn't really know what I was doing so I started to get coaching with Mars Lord and she was kind of coaching me through a lot of stuff and I wasn't very confident and the kind of things I think made me quite unique or would give me a niche I was kind of hiding away from 
and I was telling her that I was going through my own fertility journey with my husband and she was like well why don't why don't you use that like why don't you provide that support that is obviously needed so that's kind of how that side of it came to be and I do offer pregnancy support but I suppose a, a lot of where I'm working in and where my interest lies is in that queer fertility support because um, I think it, it is so needed um, for the community and with COVID as well like my own fertility journey has been held back by two or three years from when I thought I would be trying to now just starting to try yeah. so it's definitely had an awful effect um, and I don't really know of many other people who are offering the same kind of support that I'm offering so yeah, that's kind of where my interest has come from for us. Yeah, because I, I, I can't think of anyone else offering this sort of support. Like, I mean, maybe there is someone out there somewhere, but there's no one else that I've seen that's offering, especially specifically around, like, queer facility journeys and stuff. I've occasionally seen, like, people offering facility services, but not specifically for queer people or anyone in this sort of space. So, okay. so I suppose, like, where I was seeing it was like I see a lot of people offer fertility support but it's not queer focused yeah and then I see a lot of amazing queer practitioners offer pregnancy and birth support and that kind of side of things but yeah. nobody was really talking about the preconception phase or your journey to conception and like when myself and my husband it must have been like a year and a half ago but when we were kind of at the stage of being referred to for the clinic and going through initial tests we were offered um support from a psychologist there and she was just kind of saying that nobody whether you're queer or not talks about how you conceived or if you ever struggled to conceive and when I've done like surveys on my Instagram stories and stuff the majority of people were saying yeah I, I did struggle to conceive or it was harder for me and nobody talks about it and also in like potentially having to get assisted support for fertility it changes how people experience their pregnancy and their postpartum and parenting journey and nobody really talks about that so for anybody who's had any assisted conception then going into mainstream services like antenatal care or <clears throat> maternity it feels very different or you kind of feel like you're kind of on the the cusper on the outside because you maybe have more anxiety around your pregnancy yeah. or PTSD from the treatment itself that can kind of rear up um, so yeah I think it's been really interesting to figure out that people's journeys are so different and I offer training as well for doulas to look at that um, and it's been really interesting for me to kind of look into that as well. Yeah definitely I think that like you say yeah it's not something that is really taken into consideration I know that I've had like doula clients before that have just booked me and like not ever said anything on like the booking forms and then maybe like two or three appointments in it's come out that actually it's taken them like years to get to this point or that they've suffered lots of losses or things like that but like they've just they've not thought really thought to mention it to me at the beginning because I guess they just don't expect you because they don't think that like where's that space for them to talk about it basically and then yeah. it's come up and I'm like oh I'm, I'm so sorry like I had yeah no idea that yeah. <laughs> this had been going on because you just I don't know if yeah sometimes maybe I am naive about it and I just think like oh everyone's had my experience of just like not ever struggling with this and then yeah it gets into it and you realize actually 
God, you've been through it to get to this point. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose, like, nobody really talks about their conception journey. and no. I, I don't think it's, like, people being naive or, like, ignorant to not ask because then a lot of people just, it's very hidden and it's very secretive and you don't really talk about it. Or, like, what my experience with my husband, and particularly being in a queer relationship, because we're both LGBT, um, not a lot of our friends aren't conceiving at the same time. So I'm noticing with a lot of our cis and heterosexual friends, they're maybe all starting to start their families in around the same time. So they've got peers that yeah. are, have either been through postpartum at the same time or are pregnant at the same time. Um, but for us, we're kind of doing it alone. And then your friends don't really know what to ask or how to <laughs> ask things. Um, so it can be quite isolating and then with clients that I have or people that are interested in the service it's the same for them when I'm checking in about to them about their social networks they're like we don't really none of our friends are trying at this point either and so I think it can be quite isolating and then I suppose when I'm thinking about my paperwork and being a doula for my pregnancy paperwork as well I specifically put in a question on how somebody's conception journey went, even if they've not come to me for fertility. And with the doula training I offer as well, part of that training is looking at, like, I think it's like 25 things that you can do with your practice to show that, like, consideration or those little changes where it starts up that conversation. And with, I also offer queer antenatal education and a whole session on that program is dedicated to just allowing people to have the space to talk about it because some people this is where it can feel daunting with fertility as well because some people can go into fertility and they get pregnant within the first cycle or the second cycle of treatment and other people I know have had to wait for like six years or they've not been able to conceive and they've had to look down other routes and I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions as well is a lot of people think, and this is something that the clinic had to speak to us about, but we kind of had an awareness, but a lot of people assume that if you're going through fertility treatment, that there's going to be a pregnancy or a baby at the end of it. And that's not necessarily true. Yeah. And um, Sometimes there won't be, and it won't be successful. And you might have to look at other avenues or like go through that loss and grieving stage that you're not going to have the family that you expected and I think there can be that toxic positivity thing with pregnancy as well of like oh well you'll definitely get pregnant or you should just be trying this or I've heard this this and this from this person um, and that can put a lot of pressure on or like that sense of loss as well and just people don't know how to talk about it or there's so many misconceptions that people have about fertility treatment itself I think yeah 100% I think it is one of those things that we just we don't talk about it at all no one no one knows about it no one talks about it so no one knows what to say so when you do come across a client or just somebody that you're talking to someone like an associate you you don't I mean obviously you do but but for like for most of us like we yeah we we don't know what to say we we just we're on our tiptoes around it because it is because like you say you don't yeah you don't know what the end of it's going to look like you don't know how long it's going to take you don't know what people have been through previously to get to this point that they're at already so it is it is a sensitive um sensitive topic so as a fertility doula how do you sort of outline your role or is it completely individual for every person that you see um 
I think it's kind of, I think when I first started and I hadn't had my own lived experience yet or I, I was kind of looking at other doulas models and being like, okay, well, this makes sense. And I was just offering three months of support with like weekly sessions with, with me at a certain price. And then looking at the system as well, um, sometimes you can be waiting from across the UK, you can take three months to three years to then be seen by the clinic. Right. So it didn't really feel like that fit in with people's lived experience or what they might need. So I think I just started to set up a model of, I now offer models of three, six, 12 and 18 months. So it's kind of like the, the shorter ones are probably the more intensive periods of maybe you're go, you've gone through like multiple cycles or losses or you've had to come to terms with potentially having to go down the IVF route and kind of having that quite intensive emotional support. Um, and then as they get kind of longer, the 18-month one might be more so, okay, you've definitely got onto the referral list and you're probably going to start treatment in the next six months. So let's meet up every month and just have that support for you in place. But I think... A lot of the t- things that I see with um, fertility support and fertility coaching, where I think trying to be a fertility doula is kind of different. And I've seen a lot of fertility doulas in, say, America, but I haven't really been able to find another person that would identify as a fertility doula like myself in Scotland or kind of in the UK. Yeah. But I kind of take it very similar model to like the pregnancy doula role of like working and providing like evidence-based information more probably around the context of like fertility education but really looking at it from like that emotional and physical and informational support throughout the whole process so you're kind of bringing like evidence-based education connection empathy advocacy as well because that could be a huge thing where sometimes you kind of feel like you're just on this conveyor belt and kind of knowing what your rights are, being like, you can say no to those things or you don't have to just go along with things or you can look at other options. Um, And that kind of holistic care as well, because the whole I'm finding and what I'm hearing from other queer people is the whole process can be very clinical. Um, It's kind of, yeah, there's it's very clinical. And then a lot of information that you can be given is done sometimes in a very cold matter of fact delivery because if you think about it, doctors and nurses are telling this kind of information to people every day. Yeah. And I think with like issues with like the NHS and funding and everything and then um, like medical burnouts, you're just kind of told things quite matter of factly. And even when we were accessing like the therapy support before starting the treatment and um, the therapist attitude was just kind of like, well, that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And myself and Bradley were like, we know that's the way it is, but could you talk us through how we can deal with that emotionally? Because I think it's different now, but when we were prepping for fertility, um, we were going to be separated. So Riley wasn't able to come with me to the clinic for any appointment. So he could come with me, but he wasn't allowed through the doors. And I was kind of saying, but even if we've had all of our jabs or... <clears throat> even for the moments of like conception where we would be 
using like the donor sperm can really be in the room and they were just like no he'll have to just stay outside and because obviously that was a systemic thing we were going to completely respect but it the kind of attitude was just like well that's just the way it is yeah but that's obviously going to have a huge emotional toll and for people like for Riley because we've decided to use donor sperm rather than use like reciprocal IVF and he was already kind of feeling quite separated from the whole thing and so that was kind of difficult so that's kind of where a lot of that support comes in and yeah then like providing emotional support I suppose there's the added support that you're like I also kind of can support people if they're a single parent I've had Hmm. one or two people contact me that way to be like I'd really like to try to conceive I'm not with anybody but could you come with me or give me that added support at appointments and you're also helping people to not feel like burdened pressured or like left behind in the process and um, particularly like if they're the non-bio parent and you're kind of helping couples or single parents like manage a whole range of emotions because you don't know how you're going to feel or particularly with couples as well, one of the biggest things is remembering for each other that you're both probably going to have different emotional reactions at different stages. Yeah. Um, so you're kind of there to kind of help them still feel connected or like regulated together. Um, I suppose they're kind of like the main things. And then for like the physical support, obviously um, I can go and be there at fer- fertility clinic appointments with people whether that's I'm actually attending the, the appointment as well or being in the hospital to kind of check in after um, or like like doing text or like phone support or like Zoom support. Um, I provide like checklists of things to have for an appointment or like aftercare because I don't think many people think of that either. If you've gone through certain procedures, it's a very tiring process, particularly on a procedure day. So... Um, like you'll you have to track your ovulation then if you're at a peak you have to phone before quarter to eight in the morning for my clinic then you come in they'll do a blood test to confirm your like LH is like up yeah and then they'll be like okay yeah you're ovulating go like for me it would be like okay go back to work or go home and then they'll call you and then they'll be like yes you have to come in at three o'clock that same day to then go through the procedure so it can be very tiring yeah. um, particularly if you're like a couple who both works to kind of coordinate that as well um, and then obviously it can be quite I don't necessarily think it's painful but it can be quite uncomfortable so thinking about those aftercare things of looking at I can also like help with a bit of meal prepping if that's what they need or like just reminding them of those things of like hey maybe set aside some cash so you can get a takeaway that night so you don't have that pressure to cook and just remember to look after yourself and clinics are quite good they can give a letter for your employer to say hey they may need to go to an appointment quite last minute but just remembering like maybe if you need to work back some time don't feel like you have to do it that same day maybe yeah. work an extra hour like for a few days after um and then I suppose yeah it's kind of like being able to be there to debrief as well because you're being told so much information and sometimes in a matter of fact way 
so having that I suppose like a birth doula would do to be like okay that's a lot to process how are you feeling about that like how do you want to proceed probably it's like a huge thing um and I suppose and I, I, like why I probably set up the service and why I felt like it was needed as we kind of said before it is really isolating and nobody really talks about it so kind of having that added doula support um, and particularly with queer fertility doula stuff which is why I kind of want to help that clientele the most is that you know that you're getting doulas with like the same values and the same lived experience so they can help you kind of feel more like grounded or connected or informed throughout the whole process because sometimes it just feels like you're just on this conveyor belt and so much stuff around it is just assumed that you'll know all this information already and I've I've been studying it for the last year and a half and I still have to ask questions or get told different things from different nurses so it can be quite overwhelming I think as well. Yeah, no, I bet I am. God, I had no idea about how that happens on the day that you have to ring up so early in the morning and just literally basically be on call. But (laughs) that's wild. (laughs) I don't know if it's changed, but I thought it was like, oh, you go in, you get your blood checked and then they're like, okay, you'll be booked in, just sit and wait and we'll call you in in like half an hour. I didn't realise I'd have to go home and come (laughs) back hours later. (laughs) So what you're offering is sort of like the it is in, completely individualized for it's like I guess the emotional holistic individualized support that people are yeah just not getting when they're yeah. actually seeing the medical professionals which yeah I guess is similar to a pregnancy doula I guess but it's more all-encompassing it sounds like for fertility yeah and I think hopefully if I can get this like fertility doula stuff off the ground like my plan would be to train other people to become fertility doulas as well. But like the biggest comments that I get from queer people um, and anybody that's gone through fertility support is kind of saying, oh my God, I wish raw birth existed when I was starting my family. Because yeah. you're kind of just left completely alone to go through this whole process. Um, and then there's the added difficulty as well that if you do manage to conceive there's no real transition period. You've maybe been with this clinic for like six months, a year, maybe multiple years. And then it's kind of like, okay, bye, go into the maternity system. Yeah, yeah. I had a a client who had, um, she was a single parent and she'd gone through IVF and yeah, they basically just like dropped her off and then she was under the midwives. And then at one point she randomly got a consultant that she just, like he just rung her out of the blue and she was like, oh, now I'm under consultant. Like she knew she was going to be, but she'd not had any sort of crossover, no like forewarning, nothing. And then all of a sudden she was like, right, okay, you're my consultant. Let's explain everything that's happened to you. And there was, yeah, absolutely no crossover, no chat or anything between them. Because when we were, we we had some issues with the therapist that we got through the NHS. So we decided to stop seeing them and to pay for a queer therapist ourselves. But when we were speaking to her, say last year to be like, so if we get pregnant, can we still speak to you about how that pregnancy feels or whatever? And she's like, no, you're not part of the service anymore. So you're just going to go into maternity. And I was like, okay, that feels like a lot. Yeah. That's, and especially because nowadays there's so much, um chat 
about continuity of care during pregnancy, surely that extends even more so for people who have had this sort of tumultuous journey to get to that point. Surely you would think that that would be incredibly important for people to have some sort of like stable continuity. Yeah. <laughs> you would think. I, suppose, I think it's kind of difficult because I think maybe it's the same with like the emotional experience with pregnancy after fertility and it, it it's maybe reflected in the system but a lot of people say which i think is why like high levels of perinatal anxiety and perinatal depression is so high among people who have had to use it like assisted conception support particularly going into the first trimester of pregnancy because you're kind of met with a lot of toxic positivity or everybody's then so excited that you're pregnant and a lot of people are like okay I feel happy that I'm pregnant but I'm so anxious that something's going to go wrong and I went through all this shit to get here and now I've got nobody to speak to about it and then unless you've got proper support of like fertility support groups or other people that you know you've kind of got the system being like, oh, it's so great that you're pregnant, bye. Yeah. All around you being like, oh my God, but you're pregnant. You must be so excited. You must be so grateful. And a lot of people's lived experiences like, I don't know how to feel about this or I feel burnt out and now I'm going straight into maternity where there's like systemic issues there. And then there's like that thing where you're usually already categorized as like being a high risk client which mightn't necessarily be the case yeah and you're kind of like stuck in that system and don't really know where to go or where to process things I think as well yeah it's really hard but I mean that speaks sort of testament to your role that uh, why it is so important because no one else is doing it (laughs) (laughs) but that kind of leads me on to my next question because I wanted to say like why do you think that there is such a gap in the market for this because I I've seen a couple of fertility doulas in America but a lot of the time when I see people talking about fertility within their birth work or within their doula work it's more support with getting pregnant that people offer and it'll be things like we offer sometimes really random stuff like we offer like moon circles and like and I'm not downplaying things like that but sometimes I see people and that's all that they're like oh I'm a fertility I'm training fertility and they're doing like fertility yoga and stuff like that but they're not offering yeah. anything else aside from that that's the only sort of things I ever see about fertility it feels like anyway yeah I mean I think there's some absolutely amazing people that do fertility support in the UK that aren't necessarily fertility doulas there are a lot of fertility coaches right and I I don't ne- I don't necessarily know fully what certain people do um but I suppose for me and my standpoint of it like you were saying of like people being like okay well we're going to get you pregnant and we're going to do this and I know maybe a lot of fertility coaches that I've heard of as well have maybe been nurses before or come from that medical background so they're like we'll get your blood tested and we'll look at this we'll look at all your levels and from my experience of fertility I don't I don't want any of that I I'm I'm kind of having an okay experience so far with the fertility clinics um but if it were to feel difficult or I was to come across like microaggressions or not feeling like I could advocate for myself I don't really know if I want that motivational like okay well let's look at this and let's look at this yeah I kind of just want somebody to be like it's kind of shit isn't it like 
it's really shit or it's really tiring or I'm sorry that that happened or let's look at how we can do this. And I think specifically for queer people as well, a lot of the fertility coaches and for a lot of cis and heterosexual people in fertility, which I think is why it's such a big discrepancy and why I think queer fertility is support is so needed is like um, that those couples may need assisted conception support, but they still have some option, not all, not in all the times, but there is some still kind of chance where they can still try to conceive at home. They can still yeah. sleep with their partner and potentially get pregnant or depending on what the medical issue is, they could still be given certain medication to like boost their ovulation and still try at home. Whereas for a lot of queer people, particularly for like my situation or for same-sex female couples, um, we're completely reliant on the clinic. And I think that's where the frustration lies as well for a lot of queer fertility as well. Sometimes there's no medical need and there's no medical issue. You just need, it's more, it's called social infertility, which isn't like a great, (laughs) like for, for myself and Riley, so far from all the tests that I've had done, there is no medical need for me to need fertility support. Yeah. But we need to use a donor. So we need to go down those avenues for that. Like we, we want to go down those avenues for that added safety of it being regulated and for like all the legal things to be covered. Um, but then that's where it gets frustrating where you're like, oh, like we've been waiting for two and a half years. And then my BMI meant that we were like struck off for a good few months until I could get it down again. Um, but because it's been such a long wait for some queer people as well, and they don't have that option to try independently of the clinic too, we can put a lot of pressure on. Um, and I think that can be quite like a big barrier. Um, I think there's obviously there's like a huge silence and there's like that huge intensity of going through the whole process. Um, and I think they're like, we were saying like there really needs to be that kind of like holistic person-centered care just to acknowledge for people like about what they're going through in like that very moment rather than it just kind of being struck off or like oh this is just what it's like yeah but sometimes it's frightening or sometimes you potentially do get pregnant or you get a false positive and you don't really have anybody for that support to like talk that through um and yeah I suppose with the fertility coaches when they're like really motivational or like really trying to help you to conceive it's not a bit that option isn't available for everybody or sometimes you don't want that perspective on it you just want somebody like a doula to just sit with you wherever you are emotionally and be like what would you like to happen or to take some of that pressure off as well and I think there's definite fertility groups and for LGBT fertility and some of them are really good and really amazing if they're queer run kind of grassroots but I think one of the things that has been a barrier for us in accessing like proper and consistent support with people who are going through the same thing is some big organizations will have an LGBT fertility group but it will be led by a staff member that doesn't have the lived experience of being queer and it might be co-led with volunteers but you would hope that because 
fertility support is such a needed and essential service for queer communities and um, because like they're completely reliant on it to potentially yeah. serve their family that and um, you would hope that maybe funding streams would start to see that and make it a bit of a difference in providing that specific support so then people who do have that lived experience can then take on those roles to give more adequate support or like safer support where you feel like you're being understood in the space and and a lot of things I think I'm finding with like running bra birth is because I'm not seeing a lot of fertility doula like elsewhere in the UK and I've tried like I have whole databases on my laptop of every LGBT organization that I could find across the UK to let them know that bra birth existed and some people don't know that like the service exists and so a lot of my work in the last year has been just trying to like raise awareness of that and so that people are aware of it and and then COVID's obviously had a huge impact of people will contact me to be like well, we're, we're like really looking to try and conceive and I'm like okay cool like where are you like how long have you been on a waiting list and they're like oh well, we've not put a referral through and then I'm kind of like oh, okay well you should probably do that and just to let you know the waiting list is like two years so then they're kind of coming to me feeling all motivated and ready yeah. and then you kind of have to be like I'll, I'll maybe see you in two years yeah. <laughs> um, or then like they're maybe going because of the long waiting list they're then going through more of a private route and then they don't have the financial resources to kind of pay for that like added doula support yeah um yeah so I definitely think there could be changes with their perspective and funding and more awareness of why support like that is needed but I just don't think it's properly been considered and I think when speaking to a lot of queer families there is still kind of that attitude of like the NHS being like oh well we provided this is this not good enough and kind of getting quite defensive so I don't know it, I just feel like clinics don't really represent the lived experience of queer people themselves and what they need and support. Yeah I think yeah that's kind of how I'd thought about it in my head but obviously I wasn't 100% sure but that it seems more so that like you say queer people don't have a choice then they, you can't be at home trying to get pregnant because that's not an option but it yeah. seems like in the viewpoint of the NHS or in clinics they're catering to yeah like cis het couples who have maybe been trying for a couple of years and haven't got anywhere from it and that's kind of what they've focused on and then everyone else is like oh yeah you need help too an yeah. afterthought almost or I suppose one of the issues then for queer couples themselves, because sometimes there there is a medical need in yeah. a queer relationship for their fertility support, and there's like a, a dichotomy of issue of there's some queer people um, that I've heard of from like Freddie McConnell's podcast where it was a similar like coupling to like myself and my husband where it was a trans mask partner and his female cis partner. Um, and to get her through the funding for fertility support, they put her through all these unnecessary tests and unnecessary surgeries that she didn't need to then be like, oh, well, yeah, now you can... Yeah, now you're allowed. Yeah. yeah. 
Or equally, there's an issue on the flip side of that of people are like, oh, this is to a same-sex female couple, say, they're coming to support. So, yeah, they'll just need IUI. We won't, like, they don't necessarily do all the medical tests. Mm -hmm. And then they're going through months and months of failed cycles or they're not asking the right questions. And then when they ask the person that's trying to conceive or wanting to carry, hey, do you have a lot of, like, period pain when you have your period? And they're like, yeah, I'm in agony. And then they're like, oh, and asking more questions or like, how regular is your cycle? And it's not necessarily every 28 to 30 days. It's maybe a longer cycle. Um, and then they're not really picking up on a medical need. And then they're suddenly being like, oh, well, we didn't know this, but you've got PCOS. Or we didn't know this, but you've got endometriosis quite extensively. And I remember, I think it was on Freddie McConnell's podcast, but I remember hearing a story of a couple where that had happened. Um, and then again, with the clinic being so matter of fact, they were, they'd been trying for ages and it just wasn't working and it was taking a toll. And then they did some tests and they were like, oh, you do actually have endometriosis. So they just got that shock of a diagnosis and they literally just turned to her partner and then were like, so maybe we could try with you. And there was no thought of like how that would feel or yeah. any processing time. And it I think it really like impacted them, but there's that issue of <laughs> either things are far too invasive because they're trying to find a medical issue or or prove that you can have the treatment, or they're not looking into things enough to fully assess you to see what treatment you need. Whereas I think things are getting better. Like before I was it, like put into the clinic or inducted into the clinic and um, I went for a high cozy test where it just looked at the health of my uterus and they put a dye through my system to see that it went through my uterus and both my fallopian tubes mm. and if there had been an issue with that then they would have been like you're gonna have to go directly through IVF and um, but if there's no issue you get to go through IUI um, so I found that really helpful but then I found when I was speaking to the therapist about that to be like hey I've been asked to have this procedure she automatically was like you wouldn't have been asked to have that hmm. and I like, well I, I have been so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's like issues definitely with the NHS of being quite defensive or just it's kind of like they're overlooking things based on their preconceived idea of how fertility or people struggling with fertility do look and it's like actually yeah. that's not how it looks for everybody but I think yeah. I think and I think you find that with a lot of things with the NHS don't you they have the preconceived idea of how something should look you see it in pregnancy in bed and that's their way and then if something differs or varies slightly yeah. they're kind of scrambling to work out how to fit that into their box almost yeah like one of the issues that we had with going to the therapist which was why we decided to stop going and to change and to pay for therapy ourselves was um we were kind of having like discussions and it was kind of going okay for the first few sessions and then um I used to work in like the voluntary sector for an LGBT organization um and there was kind of like issues around like talking about gender recognition and how much it was needed 
and us being targeted by like specific groups um, that were very trans-exclusionary. And we were trying to speak to the therapist about trying to find a group of people that were going through like queer fertility stuff as well so we could have that same lived experience because they do give you resources. So we got resources on like, because we were using a donor stuff on like the donor conception network stuff on like children's books of how to explain to them that they are donor conceived which I think is so essential and so important but when we looked at all those resources none of them were LGBT specific none of the books looked at explaining to a child hey you were donor conceived because you've got two mums or you were donor conceived because one of your parents is transgender or you were conceived through surrogacy because of this yeah and they also used a donor um and when we were kind of asking around that to be like hey do you have anything that's lgbt specific the therapist's attitude with us was kind of like oh is what i've given you not good enough automatically like on the defensive we were kind of like quite shocked and then we were trying to explain to her like oh but like does the donor conception network have an LGBT network because she was kind of saying well you can go to their events like once a year they hold a national conference and Riley was saying like well I'm trans but I'm not out as trans in all contexts of my life and I don't really feel comfortable outing myself to dads who don't have the same lived experience because it would be very different and she was still kind of being quite defensive and when I asked hey is there any books because we obviously we want to tell our child for if we do manage to have a child like from the beginning that their donor conceived and the foundation is great in having books that are like age appropriate that go from like different stages so you can continue to have those conversations um throughout like your child's life into like teenhood and they've got children's groups as well for mm-hmm. them to connect with other donor conceived kids so it's amazing but when we were like hey would you know of any resources <laughs> maybe outside of this that would explain to a child that they're donor conceived because their dad is trans or their parent is trans and that she was just like no and then she was like oh well I was asked to be on an advisory group but there's just too many gender identities so we decided not to do anything and I was like if you think about it there's potentially three if you just like yeah. um so we were just like this isn't for us and when we were trying to explain like safety within groups of trying to authentically be ourselves she was just kind of she didn't really fully understand or I was saying to her like say if I went to like a mum and baby group and like somebody said something that could potentially be quite transphobic I wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable I would, would challenge it but I wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable to be like hey like my husband's trans or like that's part of my family makeup and she was like, oh, but would you not want to, like, say something? Or would you? I was like, I could, but I would worry about backlash or what might happen. And it's very different from then being with other couples who have that lived experience. And we've managed to find, like, a queer families group in Glasgow, which is really helpful. But <clears throat> we're obviously we're not pregnant yet we've not had any children before so we don't really feel like we can fully access it we went to it once and everybody was so welcoming and I felt it kind of made us feel confident about the fertility journey 
Um, whereas before it felt quite exclusionary, whereas this time it felt quite good. Um, but we kind of feel like it's not the space for us. We don't want to infringe on other people's parenting journey where they feel like they have to talk about their fertility journey with us. Um, so, yeah, I think I think there's still issues around the system of it still being quite defensive or... I think like the training is amazing. The nurses that we've met at the clinic have been great. Like they know about our situation. When we were going through initial appointments on like the phone and stuff, they were asking us which one of us wanted to carry. So they were really inclusionary in that way. But then when we were going through like our paperwork for all the legal stuff, they didn't have our our option of fertility down. They just had same-sex female couples. Right. So we had to kind of comment to be like, how we're trying to conceive isn't included. So again, it's like that little layer where you kind of feel invisible. Where yeah. You feel like, oh, I feel like it's different or I'm going to have to explain myself or like take time in a consultation to teach somebody about something. Thankfully, that hasn't had to happen. And there has been huge differences. So like when myself and Riley were trying to conceive um, or not no when we were first getting together Riley was considering for like preserving his fertility and he just didn't have like a great experience at the same clinic they didn't know how to address his situation they weren't respecting his pronouns they were kind of he said no to an internal exam because they wanted to do an internal scan and they still kind of pushed him into that and he felt really uncomfortable. And when we tried to speak to the therapist about that, like last year, she again was just kind of defensive. And, and thankfully, there does seem to be practice improvements that if you are going to the clinic, there is a specific staff team that are there for trans people themselves that are trying to conceive. But that, that whole experience for both of us just made us kind of stand back and wait a good five years before we even felt comfortable enough to go back to the clinic again to even look at going through it. And thankfully, it has been quite a positive experience so far where we do feel like the staff do understand and they're like being quite respectful. But it, that mightn't be the case in like all fertility clinics. Yeah. You just don't know. Really. Yeah, it's hard. It's almost like... Some of them are saying there's too many intersections and we don't know how to fit into each one, so we're just not going to bother. Because yeah. and they're saying like we we've got this, take it or leave it, because we yeah. don't need to cater to every single one because there's too many of you. Is basically what they're saying. <laughs> it's yeah. so unhelpful and so invalidating as well. I can't yeah. imagine going through everything that you've been to to get to this point and then getting like you said to the clinic and you find that your options are not even there and you're thinking well do we not exist do other couples like us not exist surely we're not the first people in this relationship in this situation yeah I think that's where um a lot I'm not I don't know like stats or anything but I think a high majority of queer people will more so go down the independent route for trying to conceive um which is Great. Like, I think maybe if we had thought about it and we knew that because we'd literally put in our referral like two weeks before the whole pandemic happened. I think if we'd known that that was going to happen, I think 
we might we both kind of said we might have been more comfortable going through a state of finding like a donor ourselves or potentially asking a friend um and then looking at just go like kind of going through that monthly cycle of being like okay i'm ovulating so i'll i'll check in with our donor and see if we can set something up to try and conceive um but i think a lot of people like um yeah if either people either they've conceived completely independently and then if doctors make assumptions about how their family has been made up and it's not necessarily true they will just go along with that to be kind of to be more comfortable or to just have that safety for themselves but yeah definitely independent routes can definitely be like a huge thing what I would say for the independent route thing is if you can definitely speak to a family lawyer before looking at things like that to maybe write up agreements where yeah. potential people that you're asking to be donors or if you're looking at surrogacy agreements like look into the law around that and what that means because depending on how a child is conceived can affect who is responsible for like parental rights and responsibility and sometimes if you've not looked into that or you're kind of jumping into it that can kind of impact who can go on the birth certificate or who is seen as the parent um so that's something to consider but definitely if if you're like queer and you're like worried about going through a fertility like clinic process you don't have to do that you can definitely set up your own arrangements if like independent fertility would feel that bit better for you as well yeah i I think that's really helpful to note because i think for a lot of people that probably feels like the easier option but then yeah. it's all of the legal stuff you've got to do it yourself you're completely responsible for all of that stuff and you've got to make sure that that's down to a t so that nothing comes up at a later date and makes that even more stressful yeah, yeah. and obviously with um say with like going through a clinic as well everything is kind of regulated so like everything about my body is screened and made sure that it's healthy and everything about the donor that we've chosen I know that they've been fully screened and are at like peak health Um, and then obviously because you've used a donor there's things around being put on a register then so your child um, obviously like all, all the donor registers are completely anonymous but once your child is 16 they can access certain information about potential donor siblings that they may have, like a, right. across the UK or across Scotland. And then once they're 18, um, they can access like information about their donor if they would like to contact their donor to potentially meet or find out more. So there is that kind of added security. And there is that added security of that separation of potentially somebody not trying to like intervene or like you know that it's all very boundaried and regulated and like it's very strict like if we ever move house or if we were ever to like change our like names or whatever we have to go back and let the clinic know so everything is kind of interconnected so that they keep track and so that our child has full full access to know who their donor was if they would like to Oh wow, that that's really interesting because I didn't, yeah, I wouldn't have even considered any of that stuff. But I guess yeah, it's from that point of view. If you're going through the clinics and stuff, you don't have to worry about it at all. It's just yeah. it's kind of like a le- it's it's one less thing that yeah. you've got to consider what on what's already 
a lot of things to consider. <laughs> yeah, and you know that it's regulated. Not that I think. Well, there are certain documentaries of like scandals that have happened with. I'll I'll find out the name and I'll let you know for the yeah. podcast. But there are certain documentaries of like scandals that have happened of people being like, "Oh, I'll be a donor for you," and then they've actually like impregnated quite a lot a lot of people, and yeah. it's not been very regulated. But with the UK law, I think a donor can only, um, they have to stop being a donor after they've had a certain amount of like successful pregnancies. Ah, right, yeah. So if they impregnated 10 people, then they can't be a donor anymore. Yeah. Um, but like when I was doing so, I like did a course with UCL, like the University College London on fertility stuff. Um, and there was a lot of talk on like, donors and the legality of that and there are some forums where people are offering to be donors for people just in more of that independent way and it just seemed a bit sus to me because obviously anonymity can be like important but one of the people that they were talking to that puts themselves forward for being a donor um, they were talking about how it's didn't necessarily be regulated they didn't really see an issue they should have contact with the child if they want yeah um so you just want to be a bit careful and you also potentially don't want to get into situations where people are like asking or pressuring you for money or then trying to get overly involved in your family particularly if they're a complete stranger yeah definitely that's why things like those registers can really help um so if you if you are thinking of going down the independent route just be very careful about who you are thinking of asking or how you're conceiving as well because there's like jokes going around of like oh we're a same-sex couple or whatever makeup but if I have a one-night stand with that person and I get pregnant then great we've got a baby but legally if you have sex through intercourse and conceive that third person that mightn't be part of your relationship is then the legal parent of that child that has that responsibility and sometimes people don't think of that so that can impact like legal stuff down the line and so there's like pros and cons of going down the more the clinical room or looking at independent fertility it's just about being careful yeah and putting provisions in for yourself I think I guess again that's one of the things so that you can help with isn't it so like if if people are on this journey then that's something that people can come to you with and say like I'm considering this but this is putting me off what are the alternatives and would that be better and you can help yeah. make that decision that way because I think yeah a lot of people wouldn't consider those things like you said like I've heard yeah people say like make those sort of jerks that they could just go and find somebody but then yeah. you don't want that person on the birth certificate or turning up on your door like where's my kid yeah <laughs> um, um, yeah but I think it's yeah it's just about having that added like safety so it's about potentially speaking to like a good family lawyer who'll just be able to help you either understand the ramifications of like decisions or routes that you decide to take or they'll help you write up legal agreements that you can get the person that's potentially going to be a donor or if you have surrogacy agreements to sign because also for surrogacy say in the UK, it's actually not legal for you to ask somebody to be your surrogate. Oh. You can't ask anybody. They have to offer independently um, to be your surrogate. And you can't pay them any money. You can pay general expenses like 
let's say like travel to and from hospital appointments and you can pay for things like um say like food if they're going to get meals and stuff or um travel or uh, or like say like clothing expenses if they're then going to have to buy certain maternity clothing but it's illegal for you to pay them it has to be a completely independent offer um, that they're offering to do and on those circumstances generally it does have to be done through a fertility clinic so it is kind of regulated but a lot of people don't think about that as well and there have been like fraudulent cases where people will say hey I'll be a, a like a surrogate for you and then they're just trying to con people out of money and that's yeah. why it's become much more regulated than being like I think I'm not entirely sure about the law but there's like issues in America with like um, surrogacy tourism where a lot of American couples will contact people in India and um, ask them to carry for them in exchange for quite a lot of money. And then these women, because it's not necessarily socially acceptable, they may already have families themselves, will agree to these things, go through processes to try and get pregnant. And then they'll have to go and kind of stay in like kind of like a woman's house or like a woman's refuge. And they stay there in secrecy for their whole pregnancy. And they get like maternity care with doctors and stuff. And they get like social support and like kind of community connectedness. But um, then they'll give birth and then they'll, they'll then go back to their families from wherever they're from. Um, and they might then be able to have a lot of money to like set up a business or help like other generations in their family but it's very secret and mm. there's no regulation on the payment so when I was studying that through my fertility course um, there was like clips from documentaries of women in these like these like houses or support services being like well this person is getting paid like thousands of pounds more than me and I'm only getting this much and it it just can become quite exploitative yeah so in the UK you're not necessarily it's kind of illegal for you to go down that route as well so there's so many things that people just don't understand about fertility that you kind of just assume or take for granted where it's really good to really look into things and think about it yeah definitely well that's so interesting I'd never heard of anything like that like what you especially what you just said about America with the yeah. women in India also, for like surrogacy as well probably good to mention that you don't have parental rights for that child and um, the surrogate does and ah. um, so once they give birth and particularly if they're they are married or in a civil partnership they themselves and their partner have parental rights and responsibility for that child once it's born and then you then have to sign over parental orders for the couple who were intending to, to like parent the child or look after the child that's when it all kind of becomes legal but you don't actually have any parental rights until those legal things have been signed over and they have to be done within a certain amount of time I can't necessarily remember but it's within a few weeks of the birth um, and if it's not done within that time, then the surrogate would still hold like all the parental rights and responsibilities. So there's so many things that you would just think, this is like our social arrangement, but so yeah. much stuff on the legal side, you need to really think and consider before you pick the best route for yourself, I suppose. 
Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's wild. Because I've I've spoken about being a surrogate before. I've never looked into it properly, but my best friend is gay, and we've just spoke about it. Like, if he wants to be a child, I was like, I will one hundred percent be a surrogate. I love being pregnant and giving birth. And I've literally, but in my head, I'm like, I'll just go get pregnant, pop out this baby, and give you it, <laughs> as if it's that simple. And now I'm thinking about, it, I'm like, of course it's not that simple. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> but in my head, I've just been like, yeah, I'll have a baby for you. No big deal. <laughs> But that's like the right track because you've offered. But yeah, at least I've offered. It wouldn't be legal. Yeah, no, he's never asked me. Well, it's it's in conversation, but I've offered. It's not. But I've never, yeah. In my head, I've always just been like, yeah, I'll pop a baby out. No big deal. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So before I I let you go, because we've been talking quite a while, but I do want to ask um, if you would sort of talk on the impact of the fertility experience on people who then do go on to get pregnant and obviously giving birth and then even into sort of postpartum into their parenthood journey if you wouldn't mind chatting on that so we kind of chatted a bit about it like for our chat but like um a lot of the kind of lived experience or what I hear or what I see from like anthologies of like queer fertility is like people don't really know where they fit once they get pregnant they don't really fit in the trying to conceive groups anymore or they feel like they can't talk about their pregnancy in those groups and they don't really fit in the people that maybe have never talked about how they've conceived or have seemed to conceive quite easily so you kind of feel like you don't really know where you stand um and they're like I think it's such a big phenomenon that there is certain podcasts on it of like the kind of finally there's one I think called the finally pregnant podcast and it's about that whole area of like having that space for people to be like yeah I went through fertility and it it took however long and it's a very different experience and in having like a lot of perinatal anxiety particularly when the first trimester is very very common but again nobody really talks about it so people just think that they're going mad or like or I must be so ungrateful that yeah. I, I feel this way and I shouldn't feel this way. I should feel really happy that I'm pregnant. Um, but it's like, it is very, very common to kind of have that as well. And um, when people talk about kind of going into the maternity system or like pregnancy and birth, people can already say like they feel burnt out or exhausted by the time the baby has come because they've gone through maybe years of treatment or they just feel wiped out or now that the whole experience has kind of ended maybe symptoms of like um ptsd both from fertility experience and pregnancy or birth can kind of start to seep in and i think that's kind of common and having a lot of fear around pregnancy and birth is a huge thing i know i've not necessarily supported people but obviously i follow a lot of people who've been through fertility to get pregnant And I've kind of followed their journey and then they've talked about going in for their like C-section or going in for their birth and they're constantly anxious throughout the whole experience. Or one woman I spoke to said that she was just in um, like tears and constantly having panic attacks throughout her birth because she thought that something was going to go wrong and her baby was going to die and nobody within the medical team was kind of equipped to understand why that might be happening or because nobody talks about it there was other people talking about like well, I'm, I'm going in for my plan c-section tomorrow but I'm so anxious that something's going to happen and it is very normal to feel like that because you've 
gone through this whole huge journey potentially to get to that point and you're you are kind of potentially constantly worried that something's going to happen and with potentially going through fertility journeys you are kind of put more in the high not necessarily because there is a, a high risk but it's kind of just this immediate root thing where you are just put in that kind of root of like so you're already kind of being not micromanaged but every little thing about your pregnancy then is like under a microscope so that can obviously impact things and there's a lack of like adequate antenatal education that incorporates preconception and fertility there's that lack of peer support particularly if you're kind of doing it by yourself where you're not really talking about the fact that you're going through fertility support again we talked about it like just that that thing with that whole attitude of just like but you should just be happy that you're pregnant yeah. and some people just don't know how to respond to that or they do feel happy but then they feel all this other range of emotions and then there's no real way or appropriate person to like process that with um obviously yeah we talked about like high risk of like mental health um and like peri like and postnatal mental health um uh, yeah you kind of like not feeling connected or wanting to be involved um with other people potentially after the birth um I know that that can kind of happen of you kind of either feel kind of disconnected after the birth you you have like that guilt that you're not really connecting with your baby or the opposite can happen and I've seen that happen where potentially people have contacted me because they are pregnant and they're they were more so looking for postnatal support which I can't provide so I passed them on to other doulas that I know and and then when I was speaking to them about like oh like how are things going and there was this like anxiety around it of not wanting the doula support or not wanting the doula to come into the house or um, I knew that they were potentially really struggling with like feeding or knowing how to feed and I knew that they really wanted to breastfeed um, but then they were like they didn't want people to come into the house and COVID had a huge impact in feeling so anxious that something was going to happen to the baby so sometimes I think for doula work as well it can come it can bring up a lot of barriers that if doulas aren't making those connections with how it might be connected to the preconception phase can be quite difficult then for like a a pregnancy doula or a postpartum doula to effectively work or kind of build up that trust with people yeah I think that can kind of happen as well um and then yeah like I suppose yeah the final thing is like just finding it hard to accept that support or you finally feel like your baby's here or like the the things that people talk about after pregnancy of if you've got a lot of visitors and stuff coming over that you don't really feel like you've got the time with your baby or that connectedness either it can kind of feel exhausting in that way yeah that's really interesting I'd I'd never considered that that I think you sort of accept that yeah maybe people might struggle to connect but you don't think about it the other way that it might be completely that you're so over protected because it's been such a journey to get there that you do you don't want anyone around you can't fathom having anyone else hold this baby because you finally got them and it's like no one else can come into that you don't want anything things had already been going wrong for so long that you no longer necessarily maybe have that trust that actually things are okay now and things will be okay yeah 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 I think that's really important to kind of 
they've never even considered that so that's really I'm really glad you brought that up because I wouldn't have even thought about that yeah I think like something that I've noticed as well from because it's why I started to develop the queer antenatal education but something that I did notice was when say pregnant people were contacting me to be like hey we're looking for this kind of support or I'm really struggling with how I'm feeling in my pregnancy is they're kind of catching up with themselves in like trying to process the whole fertility experience and then either they're trying to access mainstream antenatal support um, and they're not really feeling like it's for them or it's causing them a lot of anxiety or they don't really feel like they fit like some people have spoken to me about potentially in their fertility journey they've had a miscarriage or a loss along the way and then when they're well maybe again it's around that issue of potentially people not speaking about it but then when they're around all these other people that are so excited in their own pregnancy they're like well I don't feel excited I feel constantly worried that I'm going to lose this baby and I'm not going to feel okay until they're here and that could be a huge issue and what I was finding with some couples was they would contact me and they would be like oh, well, we're due in, like, six weeks, but we don't know how to feed a baby. We don't know how to, like, we don't know anything about safe sleep because they've had, they've kind of, like, stuck in trying to process all this fertility stuff that they were kind of on the back burner of having that confidence in their own parenting and their own postpartum care, which I think can be an issue as well. Yeah, it completely makes sense, doesn't it? Like, if you've spent so long trying to get to this point and then you're finally in it, you are going to be really consumed in that experience and not necessarily consider what comes after and then all of a sudden be shell-shocked, like... Because, I mean, for anybody, having a baby is a massive life-changing event. You're like, what the hell do I do with this tiny human? (laughs) But especially if you've not had that sort of nine months to sit and consider it, like other people Mm -hmm. have, other people who haven't struggled with anything beforehand can spend that time thinking, let's do some birth prep, let's do some postpartum prep. But if you're not in that headspace then it must be such a shock like such a huge shock to be like well what do I do now (laughs) (laughs) so yeah thank you so much for sharing that um before I let you go do you want to share um where people can find you and what workshops you do run obviously I'll put everything in the show notes but if you just want to let people know yeah um Mm -hmm. so my website is rawbirth so um, b-r-a-w-birth.co.uk and I run workshops um stuff looking at like navigating your options and the system as a queer person so kind of a lot of stuff we talked about today um stuff around building better boundaries as well in your fertility and pregnancy so that you kind of feel safe and secure of the information that you're sharing and you don't feel like people are um like making demands on you and it's kind of all on your terms because i think that can kind of be forgotten or people can kind of ask get either give unsolicited advice or ask quite intrusive questions that you wouldn't necessarily want to answer or people just don't think about certain things when they're asking either about pregnancy or fertility and the third workshop that I run is stuff around fatness queerness and fertility and because there's huge issues around BMI barriers um, and then that impacts your like access to fertility treatment and then the compounding thing of if you're a queer person and that's your only route to trying to conceive and then fertility clinics are just turning you away and then completely ignoring you even if you have been 
on a route until you're actually at that point of being at what they consider a healthy BMI they just won't contact you again it's kind of left completely mm. up to you to get things quote unquote like back on track and um, so it kind of looks at the intersections of that of um, fatness and fertility within the queer community um, and how to look at that how to have a healthier approach and um, how you might respond to it or um, looking at the issues of like weight cycling and dieting and how that can impact your like mental health so a, a key person I think to really look at that is Nicola Salmon she's a fertility coach but she does like fat positive fertility coaching and she talks she's got like books out and she's just started her own podcast so she'd know a hell of a lot more about it than me but quite a few people were asking me to and um, do a workshop or do a specific focus on that so that's where my workshops kind of come in but she does amazing work on that if people are really interested or really struggling with that kind of barrier and um, obviously with the fertility doula packages I offer uh, packages of like 3, 6, 12 and 18 months of support it's all completely bespoke it can be quite flexible or we can look at the different things that you would want to do for like the more smaller ones so for like the three and six month one the three month I would meet with you every week for an hour and then be there for like the added support of like appointments doing added research for you providing resources those kind of things the six month one I meet with you every fortnight and then the 12 and 18 month we would meet monthly but all all the like added things of the physical care, all the informational care as well is all included. Um, they also offer queer pregnancy and um, doula support as well. So supporting you throughout your pregnancy with antenatal education, helping you set up your birth plan, and then obviously being on call for your birth. Um, I don't. I offer a postpartum visit, but I can't physically offer postpartum care. But I do have good connections obviously across the UK of like amazing postpartum doulas and then the kind of oh, well I suppose then I also offered the queer antenatal education and I've got that coming up in January as well for people who maybe want a very queer focused kind of <clears throat> course and then I also offer training to doulas in being more aware of their support response to the preconception phase and how it then can impact like pregnancy birth and postpartum and I've got some training dates coming up for that for like mid-January as well. Oh, perfect. Thank you. I'll put the links to um, everything in the show notes um, so people can find that. And thank you so much for coming on. I've, I feel like I've learned so much. So I think that everyone listening is going to feel exactly the same. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. So thank you for coming and sharing your time. And everything that you offer just sounds so wonderful and so needed oh, as well. <laughs> thank you for inviting me on. I've really enjoyed it as well. So that concludes our chat on queer fertility support. I hope that you found it helpful and again a huge thank you to Diva for coming onto the podcast and sharing her time and massive wealth of knowledge. Please do check out the show notes for links to all of her work. If you're currently on your own fertility journey then I'm sending you lots of love and please do reach out to Diva if you feel that you would like some support. If you have any more questions then come hang out on Instagram where I'm at the Dungaree Doula and Diva is at bra underscore bear and let us know if you enjoyed the episode. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do stick around, like, follow and subscribe, or even leave a little review if you don't mind. That would be very helpful. It's
speak soon. Bye.